What is crackalackin', fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley coming at you with my certified fantabulous co-host, Grant Hughes. We are delivering you our Western Conference mailbag, as promised, where we will get to one or two questions for every single team. Thank you all for submitting your questions. Before we get started, please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're consuming us. If you're on YouTube right now, hit that sub button. Like, comment, help the algorithm love us back. Subscribe on your podcast player of choice, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you're consuming us. If you've done all those things, please shout us out. Tell people about us, friends, family members, enemies, coworkers, random people on the street about this shitty basketball podcast you listen to that you would like to help expand their audience for. And follow us on the socials at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Hardwood underscore Knox on Instagram. With all that out of the way in under a minute, I might add. Grant, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to do this. Great questions again, everybody. Uh, this is a super helpful exercise as always. So uh, I think that's enough ado. So without further ado, uh, Minnesota Timberwolves are next up. This is from Alistair Albert. Are the Wolves just worse without Cat or are they the team they are right now with him? The Gobert trade seems to have been a bust and could be a result of coaching, but I've never rated Cat as a leader anyway. So is his absence just as bad as his presence or are they the same? I have to first say... Like I've been thinking about this a lot because I think I've I defended the Gobert trade. I thought it made sense, and I've kind of slowly backed off of it. But it's pretty clear now. Like it's just Gobert's not good enough. He's he's not the same guy he was last year. And then even if he were, I just don't know if that's a big enough difference maker to justify the outlay. And and this would be I'd feel this way even if the Jazz weren't like getting really good use out of basically everybody they got in that trade. This is just about Gobert just not being uh, a positive on offense, not being quite as good defensively. He's under two blocks a game, which is like just wild to me. Um, so yeah, that's a bad look, but getting back to cat um, just here are the numbers before we start talking about like opinions. Um, Minnesota's minus 0.9 with him on. This is before they lost last night. So we'll see. Um, Aware, minus- to your point, by the way, Rudy Gobert, was subbed out on offense against a heat team that had Orlando Robinson. Orlando Robinson. Yeah. We'll remember it as the Orlando Robinson game. Uh, yeah. Minus 0.9 with cat on plus 0.3 with him off. Um, cleaning the glasses, non-garbage on off is a little different, but he's just a slight positive when you filter that out in, by cleaning the glass, but this is still talking about 700 minutes of playing time. So small sample caveats and make them blink around somehow. Um, I guess I agree that, you know, the evidence suggests Cat isn't like a transformative leader. He's had some real rough playoff games. I agree you need a defensive presence next to him. Um, I agree that, you know, it's just not working out so far. And the fact that you can even ask, like, is are the Wolves as good with him as they are without him is like kind of pretty serious issue for a guy that is supposed to be like a max level, you know, superstar I still think that there's just no way you're going to get me to the point of somehow you're better without a center that is as offensively talented as anybody not named Jokic that can space the floor. That's arguably the best shooting big guy of all time. If you count for volume and you don't care about the era and the fact that like Dirk didn't shoot a lot of threes. Um, He's still like a, he's still in that class of players that can just totally change your offense and be a, Gain a transformative force that makes other guys better around him offensively. He's not perfect, but like, I just, I can't get there that, that he's someone they just like don't need or that he's like a net neutral guy. 
Um, the mix doesn't work this year and he's, he can't be your best player, I guess, which is about, it's not a great situation. Um, but I don't think it's like a, he doesn't make an impact. I don't, I, I just can't get all the way there. Yeah. I would agree with everything you said. And look, the Timberwolves offense is 21st since town has been out. They're not shooting as many threes and that's right around like they're 20th overall in offense for the season. And so I don't see that there's evidence to suggest they're better off without him. You would need either this just like godly divine leap from Anthony Edwards, which we've seen in spurts where he's just really dominating ball facilitating the offense, but then he's going to have games like he did against Miami, where he's a, a trillion turnovers. Um, and there's a lot of up and downs there. And so I think Carlton Towns is not the problem with the roster. The roster construction is the problem. He's just more so a, he's a symptom of why the roster construction is what it is that the Timberwolves felt they needed to go out and get someone like Gobert to cover up for towns on defense. And I just, I appreciate big swings. I know there's new ownership there. They wanted to make a splash. But like, why did you not scale this down to like, well, instead of going all in on Rudy, do we test it out with Miles Turner? Just like someone else who spaces the floor too, but we know he protects the rim. And that's just not, you know, cannonballing into it without trying it first. I know he played with Jared Vanderbilt last year. I get it. This is a lot different though. You're playing two real centers there. Neither of whom, Jared Vanderbilt can defend fours and smaller. Rudy Gobert and Con, like that's not what what they do. And so I might still be a little bit more patient with the Timberwolves because I was just of such the belief they were going to kill it in the regular season. But mm -hmm. the evidence is growing that this team is is problematic. Yeah. There's one other one I wanted to get to uh, that kind of loops in a couple other teams, but it's Wolf specific. This is from Bradley Urie. All factors considered, who would you take, Zion, Jaw, or Edwards? Um, for me, it's Jaw and and it's it's super close with him and Zion. And I think, unfortunately, since this is a Timberwolves question, Edwards is a little bit, you know, he's a notch below, I think, either of those guys. Um, for Jaw, it's just we've seen the deep playoff run. Um, I like that it's a little easier to build around him than Zion, even though Zion's improved defense and, and the fact that you now know he's an on-ball playmaker just sort of simplifies things. I, I like that Jaws' suspect defense just doesn't really matter as much because of the position he plays, whereas Zion, though improved, I could we still don't know what that's going to look like uh, playoff series when you're going he's going to have to guard like a wing or a, a, a you know combo forward that theoretically will be like a high usage type guy. Um, I like that Jaw. This is maybe you don't come to this pod for stuff like this, but I like that Jaw has been like a real leader, and this is you know not quantifiable. But he's just sort of full commitment, been a tone setter in all the right ways. Whereas Zion, at least in the past, has had how committed is he? Like, or is he not calling CJ McCollum back over the offseason? Why is he in Portland? Just little things like that. And that's a lot of media created stuff with linking him to the Knicks and opting out and or declining the qualifying offer and all that stuff. But like Ja just doesn't have any of those issues for me. Um and also the injury thing. I think both are injury risk. Like Morant, his style subjects him to like catastrophic, you know, injury potential. Zion, we know about his injury history. We know about like the the sort of, I don't know, built-in concerns just with his frame and the conditioning stuff. Uh, it's really close between those two, but I just give Jaw the narrow edge. And Edwards just didn't quite make it because like, I think his best skill is still taking the ability to get and make really hard shots is valuable, but I think I value, I know I value Morant's ability to consistently create easier shots for other people and for himself. And just, it's a higher percentage play for him. Like he gets to the line, he can, 
you know, he's not as good a shooter, I guess, as Edwards, but like Edwards still, though he's made like marginal improvements every year uh, as a shooter and scorer and as an efficiency guy, just he's, it's, I need to see it look a little easier for Edwards more often, or, you know, be able to consistently, there aren't games where it's like, wow, jaw really isn't affecting play. There are games like that for Edwards still, I think. And, and that's maybe part of the issue. I would, if I would go Zion over jaw, I'm just too tantalized by what Zion could do at both ends. If he's going to be what, if he like ever sustains his peak, I do, but they also, you mentioned they're both injury risks. I also wonder if they both have shorter span prime windows than a lot of guys in their situation sure. based off their, like their physical tools. I would still take Zion. I think I'm just smitten by what he could be. And then I would have jaw over Edwards and that wasn't, that's not particularly difficult. Yeah. Let's move on to the New Orleans Pelicans. And our first one comes from Nick Malone. Do the Pels have the best trade asset for the trade deadline? And do you see them using it to bring in a person of need? What area do you think they need to focus on the most to keep them at the top of the West? Uh, do they have the best trade asset? And so I guess we're talking about the, they could trade like they have, they can swap with the Lakers this year. They own the Lakers pick outright next year or can defer to 2025. And so I assume that's the asset Nick is referring to one of those. I would say they probably come pretty close to it, but there might be teams that value. I, I don't, the Lakers pick that there. I think there's a belief still around the league. The Lakers will stumble in to something that not this season necessarily. And so if you're new Orleans and you can trade this year's pick, but like even shorter term, whereas they're going to stumble into something because that's what happens. Maybe they're not great, but they won't suck, which is why those 27 and 29 picks aren't that valuable for, from them specifically. Um, are, is this pick like the single most valuable, maybe available one near the deadline? Maybe I would say there are a lot of teams that I think would want to get, like if you're just offering the ability to have a Lakers pick in one of the next two drafts, I like, unless someone's going to put, I'm trying to think of who else would be on the table. If the Sixers, would you rather that? Or would you prefer Tyrese Maxey? If the Sixers have, I'd probably prefer Maxey. I love the idea to be able to defer it though. Cause you sort of get two cracks at it and just it, for, for, you know, the 24 and 25, right. Cause that's what they, that's what you can essentially do is say like, oh, we're going to punt that one. I just like the odds of at some point in the next couple of years, three years, you, the Lakers might just really, fall apart and i i want as many cracks at that as i can get but yeah maxi maxi is like it's a conversation for sure but i because in theory if you if the if it really goes sideways for the lakers you're drafting like god knows how high and you know there's a, a potential like franchise cornerstone there maxi isn't quite that guy but like probably if you're risk averse then for sure yeah maxi would be more valuable is it do i think they would move it yes do i think the player do I see the Pelicans moving this asset? And look, so the, the answer to the first question is they might have the single most valuable trade asset that's actually up for grabs at the trade deadline. That's possible. Is the player out there who's worth giving up that asset going to become available? I don't know. And as of right now, he's not. They don't. And even if it was Bradley Beal or Zach Levine, this team doesn't need that. Like I wouldn't say, and I think they need, people are going to get mad. This is all we talk about, but like, I still think it's just the, changing up sort of the front core spot next to Zion. Like when Nance is healthy, yes, that's fine. I know Jonas Valanciunas is good. I don't trust it in the playoffs. I just, I don't. And that's maybe I'll be wrong. That's fine. Even if you want to address that, who's the player that's worth this pick specifically? And I don't, or one of the picks specifically, I don't know. I mean, I've thought about if Pascal Siakam became available, it was kind of like, eh, maybe I just, his shooting fit on this team could be weird. 
would you give it up for OG Ananobi? Does he make sense when you have Trey Murphy the third, Dyson Daniels? We've seen Herb Jones slip off this year. I don't like, I guess you, I probably would just give it up because he is someone who could absolutely play it. And we've seen him defend a bunch of fives in Toronto anyway. Yeah. I just don't, I don't think they move that pick just because I don't think the market is going to dictate it. And I also think that's where parity comes in. A lot of teams just aren't going to sell because they fancy themselves buyers. But my biggest need for them would still be like, let's diversify that front court spot next to Zion. But beyond having Larry Nance or Jonas Valanciunas there, everyone knows I love Miles Turner. Maybe it's a matter of aiming smaller scale. And I, like, is Mo Bamba available? I don't think you give up. I wouldn't give up Jonas Valanciunas for him. I want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't give up Nance for him either. But if it's just in terms of matching money to bring him over and then a, a lower end asset, yeah, I would, that's something that you could look at just to have that diversification. Um, but that's also, it's a very tough spot to fill when you're looking at the archetype of player that you would want for them in that spot. And it's just, I, I don't, you'll be on those names. And this is someone who is, I honestly, I haven't thought about the trade deadline as much this year because I'm almost expecting it to be a relative disappointment to years past based off just how many teams sort of fancy themselves buyers right now. But the thing that I, the player I think they need the most I just don't know if he's readily available there. You can go different routes with the center rotation, but if you're looking for someone who could also space the floor and then maybe he's going to give you rim protection, the the list gets just inherently shorter there. Or you need to go the bigger wing route who can maybe give you help rim protection, who can defend some fives if you want him to. And like that list is even like, oh, the OG Ananobis are not just floating around out there. Yeah, I, I think... It, the you know parity is just kind of ruining you know our transactional slant on on the league right now just because it's still you know every every report you read is you know you know everybody's going to wait and and you know we nobody knows if there there just aren't really any sellers so like well on one hand maybe that should make a team like Chicago just get on the market immediately because you're going to be the only team that's looking to punt. And like Toronto, I think that applies to to a lesser extent because I think Toronto's future is just brighter with its roster than Chicago. But I agree. Like Turner's just the first guy that comes to mind, and it's, it's groupthink, and we say it a million times, you know, every week. But just something like that—that's the move. But I don't know that that move is there. So I would. It's not the worst thing if if the Pelicans just stay intact, like and get no, help. they could sit. I'm not saying I think that they if they made a Turner trade that their championship stock would go championship stock would go through the roof. But I'm not as of right now, I'm not if they're healthy, like Brandon Ingram's available, available, right. Herb Jones isn't, you know, is playing more consistently. Zion is, you know, he's been out for he's been out in health and safety protocols that miss the game for conditioning. If they're just full strength, they I think they could theoretically win the West now. I will say if they went a little bit lower end, and I don't know that these players would be available, especially because they're they're in the Western Conference and if they fancy themselves that's the other, that's the politics of all this. Why are you helping out yeah. Another team you might be competing with, like a Nas Reed, Zeke Naji, those are guys that could help you too and deepen your just wealth of options at the front court spot. Does Nas Reed become he's extension eligible? Does he become gettable if the Timberwolves sort of fade out, knowing that they have Gobert and Cat on the books already? I don't know. That's the route they could go. And I would predict those are not the players. Those are just two that came to mind. If they make a move, it's probably gonna be more on that scale than just like what their assets might suggest. Because one, they're already so good. And two, as we've just you know, driven home now way too many times, the market for this is just not like it, it just doesn't exist. And so unless you think like, oh, would it make sense? You know, if the Clippers are looking to divest some of their like combo forward wing types, like if Marcus Morris or Robert Covington becomes available, but it's oh, if Rocco can't get consistent playing time with the Clippers, is he really going to help us a ton? So there's 
there's a lot of thinking that goes into it, but I, I would guess if they make a move, it'll be on a smaller scale. It might even be just a matter of, hey, we're going to dump Jackson Hayes to open up an additional roster spot, use that at the buyout market. It also gives us more wiggle room if we want to, you know, under the tax, if we want to make moves at the trade deadline. But I don't expect them to do anything just particularly nuclear. Very quickly, Brad, Bradley Yor asks, who is the brighter future, Memphis or New Orleans? This is tough. I would go with, as I pause here, I mean, this is not the mic cutting out. I, I was I was so committed to saying New Orleans because I'm higher on Zion than I am Ja, but the Grizzlies are just built. like They're so deep, and they seem to figure out things every year, even when we don't like what they're doing. And there's is there more, there might be more sustainability behind theirs because they can grow into their ceiling a little bit more where CJ McCollum's on the older side. Jonas Valanciunas isn't young. Larry Nance Jr. isn't young. Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson are of course young. And yet you have Dyson Daniels and Trey Murphy, the third. This is a fascinating question. I'm going to tilt towards the Pelicans just because I think their top end talent, like if it, let's go Zion, Ingram and McCollum beats out Ja Bain, who is their Jaron Jackson Jr. I mean, th- so the top end talent helps them. And then they also have the Grizzlies have a ton of assets too, but they have like not dispensable assets, but assets that aren't tangible where we don't necessarily have to send out all these players to make it work. They have those Lakers picks kind of sitting in the cupboard. And I feel like they are a franchise based off what we saw them do with CJ McCollum. They would be more likely to make the seismic trade and upgrade if it becomes available than Memphis. If you're looking at just the players on this roster, I still might favor New Orleans. I am smoking hot high on Dyson Daniels and yeah. Trey Murphy. Those are just two guys that I think New Orleans is, are going to, if they stay there, they're going to, they're going to kill it. Eileen Pelicans. I don't know about you though. Oh, that's it's a, it's really hard. I think the way I, I'm going to lean, I'm going to lean Memphis and it's a lean. It's not like I'm not diving in on this at all. So my thinking is, I think Morant is the best player on either team. We've just discussed that and it's close. I think the optimized version of Jaron Jackson Jr. is just so valuable with, if you're talking about bright futures, you're talking about like that Jack, the the best version of Jaron Jackson Jr. is exactly who the Pelicans should (laughs) have. Right. So it's, it's, yeah, but he's going nowhere because He's a potential defensive player of the year that we've seen at least at points. He'd probably be my pick, by the way, if he had played more. We'll see where he's at. He might be my DPOI yeah. right now, though. He could get there. And and he's still, I think this is age 23 season. So, like, yeah, he's and he's missed a ton of time. So, there's still developmental room, room, I think, there. So, and then Bain is just like, if Bain is healthy, I just think he is exactly the type of second option scorer you want on a team that's run by a really dynamic superstar point guard. I do agree. So in one sense, I think Memphis has like the higher ceiling if everything with those three key guys just works. And then you can figure out the rest of it around them. But New Orleans just has so many shots at it because of all the draft equity, because of guys like Daniels and Murphy who are already kind of hinting at, and Daniels, especially it could be like a difference maker. Um, There's just, there's just more, well, if they, or, but what if, you know, that kind of stuff for New Orleans, I think Memphis, Memphis has, has just been better over the last couple of years. And I, I just think, I guess I'm, I guess it's another risk aversion thing. I think Memphis is like more likely to get things to go right. Um, but the Pelicans have just so many cracks at this thing. It's my, this might be my propensity for just underestimating the Grizzlies too. So that's, I picked the Pelicans is bodes very well for Grizzlies fans. Sure. Uh, you want to go to the thunder? I yes. have the thunder. Yes, 
So this is from Glad. Um, if you were to take the bottom three teams, OKC, Houston, and San Antonio in the West, and combine all their players and coaches to form a new team, what players would make the team, and where would they rank in the West? And I'm smiling as I read it because this is really fun. Uh, I made a roster too because I thought they were my team. So I'll have one <laughs> after you're done. Okay, so I didn't go all the way. I think I have a dozen guys, and I just stopped there. That's what I did too. Look at okay, us. Okay, perfect. I wonder if we overlap. So let's start with the coach. I just took Pop. Um just because I'm a I'm into the classics. And I, I think, you know, Steven Silas has had a, a rough go. And I think Mark Dagnall has done a lot of good stuff, but I'm just gonna take Popovich. I don't know if you made a pick on the coach before we go to the roster. I thought so I have Pop too, but I, I really thought about Dagnall for yeah. just a little he's real that team is by and large overachieved, I would say, defensively. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh I'm gonna go through my roster first, just with like loose positional breakdown. So uh and I already hate my backup point guard. So as, as Shea Gilgis-Alexander is the starting point guard. Uh, Jalen Green at the two, Devin Vassell three, Keldon Johnson four, Jakob Pertl five. Um, and my backups are Giddy, who I'm already thinking about taking out, um, Lou Dort, Jalen Williams, Pokashevsky, Alperin Sangoon. So that's my one through five as my backups. I also put Chet Holmgren on there because why not? And I put Tari Eason on there as well. So do you diverge at all from that or do we need to debate somebody? So I'll give you my 12 that I had. I didn't have Chet Holmgren because he's injured and I was looking at just this season. Yeah. So I would have him on the, the long-term roster, but I had SGA, Jalen Green, Lou Dort, Devin Vassell, Keldon Johnson, Alperin Shangun, Tari Eason, Josh Giddy, Kenrich Williams, Jakob Pertl, Eric Gordon, and Jabari Smith Jr. If Chet Holmgren's on the table, bye-bye Jabari. So yeah. I'll throw Chet in there. Yeah. Where does that, so how many, how many did we miss on? I didn't have Gordon. So that means I must have someone that you don't. Do you not have Jalen Williams? I don't have Jalen Williams or I thought about Usman Jang too, because I'm in love with him, but yeah, I think for this year, probably Gordon is the right pick, but I just, I'm in the bag for Jalen Williams. And, and <laughs> had I stuck to the question of like, how good would this team be? Uh, Gordon probably matters more, although, yeah, I don't know. Um, so the second part of this question is, is kind of where, we can't be wrong because it's totally speculative and hypothetical. Oh, um, watch us be wrong. We're going to be wrong. <laughs> well, we can't be wrong because it'll never happen. Where would they rank? Uh, where would they rank in the West? So I'll tell you mine. I, I think here's, here's just, I made it simple. The thunder, as I was putting this together are 14 and 19. And we just gave Gilgis Alexander four upgrades at the other starting spots. So I'm saying, I think this team is somewhere in like the four to eight range in the West and could absolutely win 50 games. Like that's just there. I mean, like, I don't know if there's enough defense, but kind of, you know, with Dort and with Pirtle, you get there a little bit uh, and Eason, if you really needed to. So yeah, I think it's a 50 win team I, and and you can't prove me wrong. Cause we'll never see this, this team take the floor. 50 wins seems incredibly ambitious. <laughs> well, if, if with SGA and ha he has, four improved starters next to him like significantly just Johnson and Vassell are yeah that's true big yeah uh, yeah that's that is it so the team's a playoff team I think so yeah I think so I mean with you I guess there's just the banking on that like you have Jalen Williams on yours if we both have Chet Holmgren you are banking on some inexperience there yeah a little bit and like is Jalen Green looking off SGA on how many how many possessions a game we need to we need to factor that in a little bit. That's true. That's a fun question. Uh, that was fun. Thank you for that, Glad. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the Phoenix Suns, who are who are my team, as it turns out. 
this question comes from Bris Paul. Why are the Suns? And then Jokic for Shokic asks, which struggling team is more likely to right the ship and be a serious Western Conference contender, the Suns or the Pelicans? So, and I think even if you just want to say who is the better championship equity right now, that's a fair question. Why are the Suns? Uh, I assume that Bris Paul is re- referring to just their ghastly December stretch where they're 27th in defense and they are four and nine in the month of December as we record this. They've dealt with some injuries, including to Devin Booker. He's now dealing with that that groin thing that limited him um, to basically barely even playing on on Christmas. That certainly doesn't help. Uh, I it would be nice if the Suns like didn't. They just feel like they've completely collapsed on the defensive end. If you go back and watch them, like hey, could you grab a defensive rebound or maybe just not foul so much? Or it just feels like guys are getting by them quicker. That there's more there's more breakdowns and there's more. Mikhail Bridges looking exasperated after every possession because of the breakdowns, not every possession, but on possessions because of the breakdowns. Uh, I have faith in the Suns to figure it out. If Devin Booker is going to be healthy, but the second part of this question is mega interesting. Who, if I had to guess who's more likely to write the ship at this point, I I'm going to go with new Orleans just because they've had, I know that the Suns have missed Chris Paul. He's, he's back now. And they're missing missing Devin Booker at the moment. They haven't had Cam Johnson. Um, they've also gotten like really good uh, moments from a Damian Lee or a Josh Akogi. Uh, they've had they've been able to figure out the center minutes between Bismack Biombo and, and Jock Landell throughout throughout the course of the entire season. Mikael Bridges, yeah, he's pulled back a little bit inside the arc lately. He's been really good this season. Uh, DeAndre Ayton has been mostly fine. Started off the season was basically a disaster, I thought, relative to expectations, but. Um, offensively, he's been able to to uh, meet or exceed expectations there. I just the Pelicans have like Brandon Ingram's missed like more than half the season at this point or whatever it is, and Zion's been in and out of the lineup, and CJ wasn't playing well to start the year. Um, they're not getting Herb Jones has been intermittently available and not played all that well, and they're just getting you know they've been at the tippy top of the West um, this year, and so and again, so have the Suns, I guess though if I'm trusting like, you know, the Pelicans defense has slipped after all the Pelicans fans were mad at us. Cause we said, we're not sure if they're the best defense in the league and they've slipped like they've slipped. Yeah. Well, um, when I'm opponents not... don't miss every three they take, that's just what happens. And so I almost trust a full strength Phoenix to figure it out defensively more. They, I guess I look at the Suns and I say for them to reach their pinnacle this season, they need a trade more than the Pelicans do. Because I think if they get so many of their top guys have been out, um, and you were also caking in so, like, and also it's just, we know Jay Crowder isn't playing for the Suns at this point. Like you just sit at home. That roster spot is gone. That money is gone. And so it feels like they need to make that move. And I would frame it this way. Who to you has more championship equity, right? Whose championships contending stock is higher right now. The Pelicans or the Suns. I might lean the Pelicans, but I think I, I might also just be, sort of wallowing in depression after the Devin Booker groin injury. So I think I got to go Pelicans. Um, and that goes against like how I make all these decisions. Cause I would just normally pick the Suns Cause like, I've seen it before. I know what it looks like. They've, they've been to the finals. The roster's not that different. They fill in that Crowder spot via trade. Cam Johnson's back. And then bang, you've got a great starting five. You, like the depth doesn't really matter that much to me in the playoffs. You can get a couple good campaign games and you're fine. Um, I just think we've gone far enough into the season that we're, we're not, we're not kind of holding on to our priors or maybe I'm just telling on myself of, I had a bad feeling about the Suns because of all the Monty Williams and Aiton stuff and the whole way the Aiton thing went. 
and then Crowder being out and Chris Paul slipping. And we just kind of keep, and now Booker having like a recurring groin injury, which is like, God knows how long he's going to need to get right, right with that. So uh, just based on the kind of my gut feeling that like maybe the sun's window had sort of shut for, you know, interpersonal reasons for relationships between players and coaches, players and the organization, um, the Sarver stuff, you can throw that in there if you want to. That's sort of over now, I guess, since the team's been sold. But um, the Pelicans, I have just fewer concerns about all of that type of stuff. And then I think the Pelicans have proved that they're just less susceptible to injury problems because they've been injured as shit. And they're, they're ahead of the Suns in the standings. And even with defensive slippage, their differentials better. It so, shows the value of kind of having the more top end creators because it's like after Devin Booker and Chris Paul, yes, Aiton is good. Mikel Bridges is good. Campaign's been good this year. They're not these top end creators. And I think that New Orleans has three of them. Mm-hmm. And that's, turns out that's important. And just more ways to win. Like, cause yes. you could lose Zion and then you're become, I'm just kind of spinning. You what lose you said. Zion, what does he matter? Is it, well, but matter. I mean, you lose Booker for the Suns and it's curtains. Like there's just, it's not going to work. If you lose, I mean, for that, both that's teams, true. The Pelicans don't have, the guy that it's curtains. For. Right. If you well, think, they, they've basically teams, been without Ingram and Zion at different points of the season and they've still it, figured it out. If Zion isn't healthy, the Pelicans like can't make the finals. I'll just say that. And right. but that's true of every team. You're just not, if your best guy's not there, you're not going to get there, but the, there's just more, there are, there are more ways for the Pelicans to succeed. Whereas the Suns kind of have to get all five guys on the same page and healthy. And then that just, that's kind of hard to see from, from where we sit right now. Um, I have the Blazers coming up here. This is another question from Glad. Where does Dame rank on all-time shooters? He said he said multiple times. I think he should be second behind Steph, and I kind of think he will be by the time he's done. Um, I'm going to give you the lawyerly answer. Well, it depends. Um, <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah, right. We could ask, we could really blow through these podcasts if we just answered it depends all the time. Um, for Dame, like in an empty gym, if you just have like we're going to see who can make the most shots then he's not really in the conversation. So volume has to matter a ton. Um, And I got to just, let's look at the stats this way. So he's at 37.3% for his career. Among guys with a thousand attempts, that's 160th. 2000 attempts, 95th. 3000 attempts, 48th out of 115. So he's like middle of the pack-ish, even at 3000 attempts. 4000 attempts, he's 17th. 5000 attempts, he's eighth out of 18 guys with that many attempts and conversion rate. But then it's like, we just have to acknowledge that the way that he generates his threes is different from basically everybody other than Steph. So like the impact he has being one of the first guys to just routinely shoot it from really deep. Like, so that stretch that ruins a defense because you have to cover like 15% more of the court than you did before. And that just has trickle down effects everywhere. Deep range off the dribble shooting ability. It's not like this is Ray Allen catching shooting at the end of his career. Reggie Miller, a movement shooter mostly. Um, so that just distinguishes him. You know, even throwing in guys like Corver or you know Jason Terry, all of these guys have more attempts and have hit a higher percentage. So I think he's top five for sure, just because of the volume and because of how he generates threes. So like, yeah, second is not r- ridiculous. I don't know what to do with clay on something like this. Cause in an empty gym, I think clay just destroys basically everyone, but Steph, I was, was going to ask how you ascribe value to the types of threes that clay Thompson predominantly trafficked in versus the types of threes that Damian Lillard did. I mean, Ultra deep off the dribble versus 
incredibly quick fire off yeah. movement. Which, which by the way, like we talk about how Steph changes everything all the time and Dame changes things, but like, what kind of shots is Clay getting if Steph isn't sucking defenders like halfway across the floor without the ball? Like it's Good just, point. it's totally different. So like empty gym shooting is different than like on the court value shooting. And you could definitely make the case that Dame is as high as second, just because of the way he impacts a defense specifically with his shooting. It's just, it's different than everybody, but Steph, you know, in, in his career. Uh, that is, well, sorry, I got another one here. Um, this this will be quick though. This is uh this is from Kyle Williams. It's a Blazers adjacent. Um, the West has a ton of incredible guards. We talked about this. You and I did last week with All Star picks. Do you think Anthony Simons would be an All Star if he's in the East? Uh, and I'll get to the second part in a minute. Um, I don't think so. Just because you're just the list, of the names like you're going to put him over. You're not putting him over Donovan Mitchell or Tyrese Halliburton or Jalen Brown. I'm not putting him over Drew Holiday. So now you're into wild card territory and you got Trey, you got Garland, you got James Harden, DeRozan, DeJounte Murray, Kyrie, who we didn't consider last time we talked about this, but now I'm kind of coming around to it. Just, I mean, Simons is a really good player offensively, but he's like, that's what did I list? Like eight or 10 guys that in the East. So it's not just an East West thing. It's that there's a shit ton of really good guards everywhere. It does seem like there might be, maybe I'm wrong here, but is there more opening long-term for him in the East at this moment, just with, Harden and DeRozan sort of aging out. Maybe not. I mean, the West is like Steph isn't exactly, you know. No. And then the other guys like Luca, Morant, Booker. Yeah. Okay. Like there's, those guys aren't going anywhere. So it's tough. So it actually it's might tough. be easier long-term in the East for him yeah. if he were yeah. in the East. Yeah. Um, the last the last thing on the Blazers, do you see a trade possible this season or in the offseason to fix their current trajectory of being incredibly mid? Um, we've talked about the challenges of trades. Like, I don't want to go back over that, but like they just have to get better defensively. They're 10th on offense. When I look this up 23rd on defense. Um, and that's with Jeremy Grant, like being kind of exactly the type of guy that they needed. Um, maybe sharp is the guy you package if you're trying to go big and win now, but we've listed all the names Turner and an OB. I just, I don't know how you get there, um, but they just do need another defender, preferably a big wing. That's, you know, not news. It's been or like maybe to add some floor spacing at the five might help them a little bit, but I would say sure. like, kind of the, the playmaking wing type would be yeah. their target. And I don't, by the way, because of the way their pick is protected this year, you know, like you can get into the, to the conditional language and whatever, but I don't know that they have the ability to, you're going to have to put Jeremy Grant and or Josh Hart or Shaden Sharp on the table. If you're trying to make a big, meaningful right. move. I think their best move is if Gary Payton the second comes back and is who he was last year, because then your defense probably gets, you know, middle of the pack instead of bottom, bottom 10. Let's move on to the Sacramento Kings. I have two. I'm going to get to this one first because it's more, more topical comes from uh, Bradley. Your, if Sabonis misses 20 games, can the Kings stay relevant without him? As of right now, he's not going to miss 20 games. He's going to try to play through that fracture in his right thumb. Uh, that is, I mean, Domas Sabonis is tough as hell. I wouldn't try and play through a fractured, fr fractured thumb. I will say Kevin Love has tried to play through one in Cleveland and it's definitely impacted his numbers. And you kind of look at what Sabonis has done this season, 38.9% from three on, you know, relatively low volume threes, but 63.9% on twos. And so you wonder if that compromises, does it compromise his touch around the basket where he's shooting about 75%? Um, he's at 53% between three and 10 feet, 44.4% .4 between 10 and 16 feet, and then 50% 
from 16 feet out to the three point line. So this is someone who has just scored efficiently at every single level this season, even though he relies on them to, to varying degrees, the offense is cratered when he's off the floor, even with the Aaron Fox in the game. And I think a lot of that is he is so instrumental as a screener to the way players move off him and with his vision, but then also you're replacing him with Metu. You're, they haven't really like, I guess you, in theory, you could replace him with Rashawn Holmes, but that's not something that they've generally like to do. You're replacing with Trey Lyles and you're getting rid of a lot of your creation just by losing Sabonis. There's Fox and Sabonis on this team. And then like, okay, Monk. And if you want to rely on Davion Mitchell as a secondary, but it's just, it's different with the way that Sabonis specifically is able to direct things from his standstills or when he's putting the ball on the floor. It's just, he's more of an anomaly at his position than anyone else on the Kings roster. And I'm very interested to see how they navigate this stretch. Maybe he won't be impacted a ton, but he's also been in terms of high volume rim protectors. Like he, there've been worse ones. And so like, does this hurt him there at all? I'm, I honestly, my answer is, I don't know, but if he is not, let's say 80%, 75 percent 70 percent is effective the kings are probably screwed yeah i think uh it's his non-shooting hand i don't know if you mentioned that uh, i think not you, thank you for but, doing that so and he's like one of the most left-handed left-handed players in the league where he's like he's so and he's not dependent on being a spacer like so in terms like it i agree the the same injury really affected kevin love kevin love just gets his value from such it's so dependent on his shooting offensively so i think sabonis can still be pretty close. So if that's that 75 or 80% figure, like I think he can be that good. Um, the problem is he is, he has been by far the King's most important and best player. And so with all the parody in the West and with, you know, the Kings defensively, I think likely to just stay bad or get worse. Maybe that is enough of a difference to where it really does like knock them down. Like we're not talking about them as a playoff team. It's a play in thing. And they're just down in that lower level mix. Um, I, I just think he is one of the guys that could sort of get through this, um, because of how he plays okay. and because of like what the Kings need from him. Um, but it is a pretty fine line uh, for sure. You have to concede that. I do think in some ways, I guess maybe it does, but like, is he going to be able to log the same minutes just because it's non shooting hand? And we, cause when you get into the backup center rotation here, like there are visible issues and does that hurt them? at all. He's just been, he is pro I've been, I was driving the De'Aaron Fox bandwagon for, well, not driving, but I was aboard it for, and I'm still on it for most of the season. But like Sabonis has been their most valuable player this year overall. And so that makes it tough. If he's going to be a reduced version of himself, this next question comes from uh, Jake G. How should we be viewing the Sabonis Halliburton trade this far in Halliburton is probably an all-star, but clearly the Kings value making a playoff run more than anything. And so I thought, I think this has been talked about and there've probably been like the lowbrow discussions on it. I don't want to have, we've talked about it too. I'm sure I, I still would not have made that deal if I'm the Kings, because I know making the playoffs means something, but like you had someone in the second year of his rookie scale contract with this in him. And I know that the belief is this couldn't have come out so long as De'Aaron Fox was there. And that's probably correct to some extent, but I do think the Kings kind of aided in this becoming an either or, scenario had you put this much shooting around them last year are, are the returns different for uh fox and uh halliburton maybe you still would have needed to have figured out the the center spot in theory beyond having rashawn holmes there sure but that seems more manageable than finding someone as good as tyrese halliburton on that contract who affords you such flexibility and i do think in the long run 
it was a misallocation of an incredibly talented player and asset. However, right now, if we're looking at just this season, both teams are accomplishing what they want to do. I mean, Indiana's just flat out better than expected. Tyrese Halliburton's an all-star. He has given them a pole star around which to build for the future. So bonus has given the Kings an offensive fulcrum who compliments De'Aaron Fox, is able to uplift De'Aaron Fox and puts them helps put them in the playoff conversation right now. Indiana's path to being more than just this mid-playoff team, though, is more open to me than Sacramento's long-term. And I, I don't want to poo-poo over the season the Kings are having. This is this has been great for them. But, the, I mean, like, even the Kevin Hurd trade, like, they, they hit on that with Atlanta. I just... I, I, it's still not a trade I would have made. It just comes down to I'm going to value the long-term trajectory more than the short-term. And even though the Kings are about to make the playoffs, that's their aim. All right, how are you getting better from here? I'm not ruling out development from guys. I mean, Keegan Murray is is just a rookie. But, like, where is the rest of the upside coming from? Like, Fox and Sabonis are there. This team is, could be better at some point next season than they are this season. I'm not ruling that out. But how do you make that more gargantuan leap from – playing playoff contender to championship contender. Yeah, I think, I mean, I agree. I think sort of in our, in the, in the industry, which is a stupid thing to say, but there really is just, there's less fandom and there's more, how do you maximize the chances of building a championship roster? And it's having really good young players on controllable contracts. Like, so from that perspective, like Halliburton is just by, an enormous margin, the better asset, the better piece in like that type of roster building approach. Mm -hmm. Um, I would also say though, that like, if you were to do this again, like let's just say right now with Halliburton being perceived as he is and Sabonis being perceived as he is like, there's no chance in a vacuum, a team would trade a player like this version of Halliburton for a player like this version of Sabonis just because Halliburton has proved Oh, he, he's, what is he like the fifth or sixth best, you know, young prospect in the league, potentially right. top 10 for sure. And he's on a rookie scale deal. And he's like, it's just so different than so many of these other young talents. Like this, he's super scalable. Like he doesn't have to be your lead ball handler. He leads the league in assists. So he obviously can be, but his shooting is good enough. His, his just general intelligence and ability to figure out what to do offensively means he can do, you can be your third option. Like if you need him to be your spot up shooter, cool. Like that's doable. So, but at the same time, like I think the Kings would, would probably do it again. Um, and, and like maybe the issue was Fox because it did seem like Fox bristled at being paired with Halliburton last year. He didn't play very well. I, you know, he's, there are different reasons for that that have been put out there that he, he got too much. He added too much weight you know, in terms of muscle, like, and he just wasn't as quick. I think if you can't figure out how to play with Halliburton, that's kind of more on you. Um, but just just was what it was. And it, the Kings decided, I guess, that that pairing wasn't going to work. I just think like the way that Halliburton has ascended means that if you compare these two players with the contracts, it's just like, it's not close. It's not close. I, I, there's no way the, the, the Pacers would ever take this back. Whereas the Kings, I guess, you know, they evaluate things from, in a different way. Uh, I have the Spurs coming up next. This is from JKG123. Why does a team like the Spurs not just go after reclamation projects like Wiseman, Reddish, Book Knight, et cetera? Is that even a good idea? Yeah, it's a good idea. That's that's what a team with cap space and no intention of winning games should absolutely be doing. I think part of the issue is like 
how are you getting these guys? Because if you're the Spurs, you've got, you know, we've toyed with, you know, Spurs Warriors trades before. Like you've got Josh Richardson. I guess you've got McDermott. You've got Pirtle. You don't want to give up picks to entice anyone to take these guys. Pirtle, someone that theoretically they could re-sign and just keep around as, you know, if they, I don't see, I'll, I don't see why you have to move him. I mean, his impending free agency is a factor, but I don't think he's going to cost an arm and a leg. So yeah, like, the Spurs and any other team with cap space, we've mentioned a handful of them because there aren't that many, um, our flexibility at least, should be all over the Warriors. Like, can we get Wiseman? Can we get Moody? Can we get Kaminga? They should be calling the Knicks to see this would have been a better move earlier when the younger guys weren't playing. But, like, what's it going to take to get Grimes or quickly or McBride or just whatever? Um, call the Magic. See if Jonathan Isaac could be had. Just take a total flyer. Like, there's there's a lot of ways to go. I, I think we always kind of espouse this for – if you're a bad team and you've got, you know, no one that you're super married to, you should just absolutely be looking for second draft guys, guys that have been huge disappointments, whose values low that if they come and flop a second time for you, it doesn't really matter because it's not like affecting a bottom line you care about. Um, do you want to add to that before we get to the hurdle part of this question? No, I guess the only thing I could add is like, it's also just, you need teams to be ready to give up on those players and like making the money work or the roster spots work could be tough. Whereas you can't just trade Josh Richardson for James Booknight. If yeah. you're the Spurs, like, yeah, you could, but you can't do that if you're Charlotte. And so those situations are probably difficult. And then I think you just run into the issue of your own roster dynamics where it's like, okay, if you have open roster spots, it's one thing. Um, but you then, again, are those teams ready to sell on those players for nothing? Or maybe you don't have an open roster spot and then you're going to still have to give up someone to, to get someone. Yeah. You, the stars really have to align. I think for, for it's a good idea. It is something that every bad team should be pursuing. Um, this is from Heroes in the Half Court. Uh, with it seeming like Jacoperto will be a popular name around the trade deadline, if you're the Spurs, is there a scenario where you keep him? And if not, what would be your asking price? I, I guess I tip my hand on this. I I would move him if I could get a first that was like actually like a real first that wasn't going to be you know two seconds if because it's top whatever protected and the odds are it's just not going to convey as a first mm -hmm. um just because i think even as as useful as he is and he's you know in his prime years early prime i guess um i just am not going to pay for centers that are not like elite defensive pieces that i could see succeeding in a playoffs and have some offensive value i like purtle a lot i think he's like a mid-tier starting center but the difference between a mid-tier starting center and a guy you can pay like four million bucks a year is like not big enough for me to want to you know, keep him around for anything more than like, I don't know, the mid-level or, or something in that range. So if I could get a first, I, I would move him. I'd be with you on that. Like, a, like you said, a real first. Yeah. That would lead me to the Utah Jazz. And the first question we have for them is from Darkwing Duck, Talon Horton Tucker or Nikhil Alexander Walker. I'd go Nikhil Alexander Walker here. He is shooting uh, really well and above the break threes this year. He has like, he could still be sort of a wild card when you're looking at his finishing, but like he's at 66.7% um, in the restricted area. Um, and I think that there's more shiftiness to him off the dribble. Well, not more shifting town Horton Tucker has that shiftiness. I think that he's easier to plug and play when he doesn't work off the dribble. And he's gotten better at doing that in Utah. Um, I think he's had a lot more like, I guess gutsy defensive moments this year when the jazz have actually played him. And so I'm still, I've always been fairly bullish on Naw, but if he's going to shoot, you know, above 40% and above the break threes, and he's going to shoot above 60% in the restricted area, and he's not going to 
dribble into as many wild shots or, you know, tick valuable seconds off the clock trying to make a decision. And he, he is making getting rid of the ball quicker this year. And I think when you look at what he does, the space that Utah creates within their, I'm like miming, like people are actually going to watch this, but the space that they create in their offense, his skill set's probably just more valuable because there's more unpredictability and levels to his, his actual scoring. Yeah. I I'd lean Alexander Walker too, even though like this is age 24 season, the shot selection stuff should be fixed by now. And he still is just prone to some wild, like just, you know, black hole, just the balls, just really bizarre decisions. Horton Tucker's two years younger in terms of his basketball reference age, but I just don't, I just don't know what the theory of Horton Tucker as like a really great, you know, or as like a high end rotation or starting level guy is because the just doesn't make enough shots. Um, he's, he's like there, Utah. I think it says a bunch that Utah is not even giving him a consistent role at this point. That's a factor for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, it's, I guess the best version of Alexander Walker to me is like a high, like a good six man, like not Jordan Clarkson level, who's on his own team, but a guy that can just, heat <laughs> up, heat up, you know, and can score and, isn't going to defend. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's Alexander Walker, but it's, I could see how someone would say Horton Tucker just because the idea of him as like a defensive difference maker who, if he could get the ball to go in enough, could actually like, you could see him on a winning team maybe more easily than Alexander Walker, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, you could see him on a winning team more easily, but yeah, just he the play? idea that only cause yeah, I could, I could theoretically see him, guarding you know a couple positions and just making spot up threes if the three ever came around which for a guy in the 20s person is is, is iffy jabroni asks is larry market in the next kevin durant bradley your ass will larry market and be an all-star i put him on my all-star is he the next kevin durant yes obviously that's that there's no question about that i put him on my all-star team last time did you have him on your all-star team he was my most painful snub Would uh, you, and it came down to paul george or Larry Markkinen. Now, I just want to make my case. Larry Markkinen this season is averaging 23.1 points, 8.2 boards, 2.1 assists, shooting 61.2% on twos and 43.2% on threes, which he's taking at a clip of nearly seven per game. There are two players, or there's only actually one of them is Larry Markkinen. There's one other player for an entire season who has averaged 23 points while hitting 60% of his twos and 40% of his threes. Would you even care to venture a guess? As to no, who? you're going to have to tell me. It's motherfucking 2012-2013 LeBron freaking James. Sure, sure. That, so he's Kevin Durant no and LeBron James. He's both. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's my point. So that has no bearing on this season, obviously, because the game has changed. This is still remarkable what he's doing. And I think just because when you start to look at the minutes disparities now, and the last time I checked, he had a few hundred minutes on Paul George, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe that yeah, has changed. 300 plus. Right. If that's what is coming down, like I know that we're not supposed to, we're supposed to reward ab ability over availability. But when you have this ability with that playing time, what he's done on offense. Oh, by the way, like he is sometimes or oftentimes being used as a, a hashtag wing. This is not someone who's just like a pure four anymore. Like he's operated like a wing on offense. He's had to defend at times like a wing on defense. I think he will be an all-star and I think he's a deserving all-star. Now, will he get the bump because the game's in Utah and people will deliberate that as of right now, December 27th at 2:42 PM Eastern time, Larry marketing is an all-star. And I'm saying that not as the empty handed tweets that I myself have sent out where I think I called De'Aaron Fox an all NBA player earlier this year. And you just don't name 
who they're going to beat out. I will point out, because I already did, so go back and listen to that podcast, who Larry Markkinen belongs on the All-Star team over for, for the West All-Stars, even though the way the teams are drafted now changes where he could be. So yes, a resounding yes, 10 times over yes, Larry Markkinen is currently an All-Star. You swayed me. Um, I think the, the, it's, it's that. It's that the difference between Markkinen and, and George in, in some of the catch-alls have flipped and marketing's ahead of him in EPM, for example, and he's closer in, in Raptor. Um, I based most of my argument for George over him on the idea that George's role is just harder and, and like more meaningful as a playmaker, you know, high end defender just has to do a bunch of different stuff for the Clippers. But I think in addition to the numbers you laid out, which are like, that's compelling. I think uh, I heard another, I heard another good argument that, like when you're picking all-stars, you're also kind of trying to make your selections on the basis of if you're telling the story of this season, like who sort of features in it and Markinen being like a breakout star for a jazz team for whom he is the best player by a lot. And is the biggest reason that the jazz are not like leading the tankathon. Like that's the big story for this season. We talked a ton about the jazz, especially earlier so that's a factor. The numbers are a factor. I got to go. I got to go marking and now over Paul George. You've, you've done it. Also, I, to your point about Paul George, though, and there is a Paul. So just this is just one number that illustrates it. Paul George, 56.8% of his three pointers have been assisted. Marketing that number is like 91% of his three. Yeah. This, this, there's there's definitely a case to be made there, but I'm just going to ride the coattails of what you were talking about with the story of this season. And that's what Larry Markkinen has done for the Jazz, who were supposed to, they didn't make sense on paper, but they never were going to be god-awful. The assumption was, and I said on this podcast, I reassured Jazz fans who were worried this wouldn't happen, and I was clearly wrong. The Jazz would not let themselves get even remotely close to a point like this. They have. I'm enjoying it. I think fans should enjoy it. They have enough uh, picks in the asset clip, and the Timberwolves look like they're dog shit anyway. Uh, feel pretty good about this season and enjoy the Lowry market. And you traded away two all-stars and still ended up with an all-star at the 2023 all-star game. I say we end it there. There's another question. We have other questions. I might try to get to them later this week, but we've gone for almost two hours on this. Did you want to, did you want to take us out of what I thought was a good, I like this setup. And so if we can get enough questions, this is definitely a, we'll bring it back for the East clearly, but this is definitely something we can cyclically go through. Yeah. Where are you at Clippers fans? We got just one. Yeah. I'll take us out. Um, thanks again, everybody for all your questions. Uh, keep them coming. We'll do the East at some point here. Um, as Dan mentioned at the top, please remember to rate review, subscribe, uh, get us on wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, we've got our socials here. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, check us out, uh, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, every place else. Tell your friends word of mouth still really helps. Um, give us five stars all over the place. And uh, lastly, I guess I want to apologize. I'm going to, I'll have to apologize to Jared Allen for not apologizing, but I will apologize to Lori Markin in this week. And we leave as we always do with a shout out to the one and only Frank Nilakina. <laughs>